1: Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
2: It is the Batter Up podcast. Will Pelagic, Joe Patrick, and Caleb Johnson. Uh, I wish I came to you with more positive news, but This is the life we live in. Uh, I think of that old movie quote that said, we picked a hell of a day to quit drinking. We picked a heck of a time to start a baseball podcast. We say hello to our colleagues. Hello, Joe Patrick. Hey, Willie P. And hello, Caleb Johnson. Womp womp. What's up, guys? So uh, I guess the only place that we can start is what we heard uh, late Monday evening from Commissioner Rob Manfred speaking to ESPN's Mike Greenberg. It's just a disaster for our game.
0: Um, absolutely no question about it. Um, it, it shouldn't be happening. Um, and it's important that we find a way to get past it and get the game back on the field for the benefit of our fans. I know the owners are 100 percent committed to getting baseball back on the field. Um, unfortunately, I can't tell you that I'm 100% certain that's going to happen. I'm not confident, Uh, uh, Mike. I I, I think there's real risk, and um, as long as there's no dialogue, that real risk is going to
2: continue. That is ESPN's Mike Greenberg speaking with Commissioner Rob Manfred of Major League Baseball. Um, I'm not going to lie to you and sit here and try to paint some rosy optimism like I know Jeff Passan has and say, oh, well, now's the real, that's when the real negotiation begins, or (laughs) it has to die first before you resurrect it. I think we're in real trouble, guys, uh, and I think that you know from other people who I've talked to, people who have talked to scouts, people who have talked to people connected to front office, uh, people seem very content, at least on the owner's side, to basically dig their heels in. And Joe, I I, I can't see the optimistic viewpoint. I know you usually handle this area of expertise for us, so <laughs> save me, okay,
0: please. Okay, okay. Uh, so I'll, I will give the one bit of optimism I can which is and i and by the way i should say that i am as pessimistic about this scenario right now as i've been through this whole situation but i would say one thing which is that having kind of experienced what the mls players went through with regards to their labor dispute they were essentially threatened with a lockout by owners on a sunday night Uh, Sunday around 8 p.m., 6 or 8 p.m., something like that, with an ultimatum, like a hard, you must agree to this deal by noon on Tuesday or lockout time. And lo and behold, the two sides came to a new agreement, not the agreement that the owners had proposed in that lockout threat, but they came to a new agreement. By that Wednesday. So within what like close to a 48-hour time span, they had actually agreed to a new deal. So that's kind of the one thing that gives me some sort of optimism is that these things can change very drastically. And oftentimes, the most severe threats are the ones that happen uh, close to when a deal is about to get done. But, you know, you never know that in the time. So the only information that we have available to us right now is that we are at a very, very serious standoff that is... Threatening not just this season, but the future of baseball. CJ, save us. No, definitely not going to do that because
3: (laughs) I have jumped on. If I was like, I was leaning on the fence of we're not going to have a season this year, and through many of the quote unquote negotiations, I feel like we can't even we can't even call it negotiations now in my personal opinion but I was leaning on the fence of we're not going to have a season and then I saw some communication where it seemed like we were working out a deal and then as it's come closer as so many uh you know sports journalists and I'm sure our radio station has has discussed the fact that these last four deals have been the same just repackaging it different and i love how some of the different players andrew mccutcheon was one of them where you know he he put it in the analogy of i'm talking to my daughter and i tell her hey if you use the bathroom i'll give you some juice and she uses the bathroom and she comes back and he says well here's some water she says no daddy i want some juice he (laughs) says well this is all you got this is the best you got you take it or leave it you get nothing And so it's this idea that we've been convinced and this idea of good faith negotiations that have been taking place. This word that's been used a lot. And I think we found out this past week after the player said, you know what, we're tired of talking. Just tell us when and where. We found out that, oh, shocker, we haven't been dealing with good faith negotiations. We've just been kind of going in a circle and so, so yeah, at, at the end of the day, I, I have jumped on the fence. I am over the fence of no season in 2020.
2: I, I want to say one thing as a point of clarification. For people who are attacking Rob Manfred, it's not that I'm completely absolving him from any kind of blame, but as other people have said, you have to remember who he works for. He would not be put out there to look like the fool if the owners didn't want him to basically act as a moat against their castle. like That is what Mm -hmm. his job is. He works for the owners. He is an employee of the owners. And if he unilaterally tried to impose a season without owner approval, the owners would try to vote him out. And he would basically be, you know, it would not be in his best professional interest to go against their wishes. So you have to read this from the standpoint of, this is what the owners want. The owners, at least a significant amount of them, and significant being the kind that can vote down the imposition of a season, do not either want to play or want to play under the terms as put forth by the March 26th agreement.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly don't envy the situation that Rob Manford is in because if you're thinking about it from his perspective, he would love it if the owners were like willing to throw out a lot more money. It would make it much easier for him to um, build some consensus between the two sides in the in in getting a deal done Uh, i do think though that i'm starting um to get more annoyed by some of the things rob manfred says like in the audio that we played earlier he talked. he kind of there's like a subtle dig that is like a guilt trip against the players union in that like they aren't willing to have the dialogue um I totally understand why you would not want to have a dialogue when you're essentially getting the same offer being sent to you, just repackaged in these different ways. Like, I wouldn't want to have a dialogue about that either because you're not – you don't want to start engaging in something where the other side is not really – I'm trying to – figure out a way to not say like negotiating in bad faith or, or not negotiating in good faith. Cause I, that just gets thrown around so much because of the the contractual language. But I just do feel like it's kind of um, it's just like a really um, petulant kind of thing to say in and in a petulant way to uh, frame the discussion and in, in what he's trying to do. Uh, you know, I, I do to kind of go back to some of these players that are putting out their opinions on the deal. I do find it very interesting that in this day and age of social media and open ideas available to everybody, I, and I think that players are probably more engaged in this, um, battle than you would see in years past, where I think that a lot of players just kind of left it up to the, the heads of the PA, um, To negotiate these things. I think you're starting to see the players able to build more momentum behind their rationale and their ideas uh, when it comes to signing in a labor agreement. And I think that that kind of that goodwill that they have with fans works very much against the owners in this situation. And I think that it's
2: smart of the players to try to use that to their advantage. The thing I don't like is that it, I feel like—and we talked about this point earlier, Caleb—that they picked now, of all times, to unearth about 25 to 26 years of grief on both sides. So the players, players have their gripes about the way free agency has gone and service time and some of these other things, and the owners have their gripes on things that they— Personally, want fixed and want you know set in stone. I think some of the smaller to mid market owners, and I think that's where a lot of the disconnect is coming from. Because if you're a big market owner, you want to play baseball. You're going to get your money one way or another, and usually because of your TV contract, uh, that will allow that to to make it go forward. But but to me, Caleb, I feel like that the situation as it sits right now is literally just something that's kind of been bubbling underneath and the volcano's now exploded
3: so we were definitely headed this direction regardless of coronavirus for 2021 because that was when the these discussions were going to start happening yes. because we were going to head towards essentially what everyone had kind of circled on their calendar as a lockout for 2021 we were headed this direction anyways it just happened a little earlier because now the two sides had to negotiate pretty much a pre-deal and i think we even talked about on this podcast the fact that whenever they agree to this deal those implications will heavily weigh on the next deal that they'll make in 2021 i thought a few weeks ago, that it would actually be the case that they would design a deal that would kind of move forward, and that they could just kind of implement for 2021. But it seemed more clear that this is just strictly just trying to get baseball played this season, and we'll worry about the later later on. And, and so that's one of those mind blowing things that it's like it's not even like you can't come to an agreement. About this season, because of the years that is going to follow, you just you can't come to a deal. Period. I, I one thing that's been thrown around a lot is this idea of trust, and the big thing between the players' association and the owners is that there is no trust between the two. And I, I think, uh, you know, it's one of those. I know people have a tendency, as, as fans, because they are fans of a team, they kind of lean in a little bit with the owners just instinctively. But when you see owners coming out this past week, like the Cardinals, like the Cubs, and saying, well, poor us, you know, we actually, we're not even making money, we're losing money, there's no money in baseball, Ah, la 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 la, kind of thing, and you're scratching your head and you're like, there's no money in baseball, but the Royals just sold their team for like hundreds of percentages on top of what they did the last time it was so. like, the, the value of, of teams are significantly growing every year. And, and so the fact that we can't get any honesty from the owners, while at, yes, at the same time, the players, they're looking for specific things that they want to have happen, but they just, they can't get straight up bottom level honesty out of the owners,
0: Yeah, what this coronavirus situation has really done is laid bare a lot of the existing open wounds that already existed between these two sides. You know, you go back... Obviously, Jeff Schultz wrote a column for The Athletic that kind of goes back in history and talks about some of the more uh, older issues that the sides had going back years and years. Um, But even if you go back a couple of years, it's like little things like not little things, but just the um, the collusion stuff that happens in free agency, like the wrestling belt that's been given to GMs who suppress wages the most and things like that. All these little things add up over time. And that was always going to come to fruition. Like you said, Caleb, that was always going to come to fruition when this new CBA was going to be negotiated. But now it's like all of a sudden you have this coronavirus situation, which requires a negotiation and it requires that you get it done quickly in order to resume the season. And this negotiation that was going to happen between baseball owners and the players was never going to be one that happened quickly um and amicably amicably based on the way that these sides have pretty much treated each other throughout this whole time it it kind of reminds me of like okay so like single guy this is an analogy that i think a single person single male would relate to (laughs) it's like when you have like uh produce or something you know like in uh you have those shelves in the refrigerator yeah that like pull out um but you can't like see what's inside, but you know you have like rot, something rotting in there that you haven't used in a while. And it's just like I'm just not gonna open that drawer and wait till later, you know, wait till something forces me to open it. It's like that door has been forced open, and now you kind of have to deal with that situation immediately in a in an inopportune time.
2: And that stink doesn't go away uh, right away either. There you go, nice. You got to pull the drawers out, scrub them down
3: really good. Yeah, it
0: takes work.
2: The thing that I don't, and again, I think before we move on, I just want to get this part in because, you know, we look at some of these other leagues. The NBA has put forth the their Orlando plan. MLS has their tournament, and uh, other leagues are finding ways to monetize sports during this time. I don't have. The wherewithal to go through the language, or at least the ability to go through the language of all the national TV contracts. I know they're very protective of their local TV, but you can't sit here and tell me that they could not create some. Uh, additional national windows for the amount of programming and the dearth that's out there. I mean, we're going to have a situation here beginning on July 8th where ESPN is basically going to be airing soccer games in three windows every day for almost like a month. And That's going to be so, huge for MLS. Like, you can't you can't sit here and tell me baseball couldn't have come up with some sort of idea for ESPN and FS1 and Turner who are just begging for programming. Like even on Sunday, ABC was once again airing another re-airing of the last dance, because that's the only thing on their network that can draw a number outside of like paid programming and crap. So you can't sit here and tell me that you couldn't have had the business savvy. To go to your national television partners and get a little bit more scratch to give your owners to tide them over and get them some cash flow in order to restart a season. This obstinance from the owners and saying, well, the only way we can make money is if we have fans in the stands is short sighted. And I think the stupidest part of all this. And also, I don't think it's I think, it's something that nobody's talking about.
0: Yeah, like it's totally like short termism. It's like. It, it, it's not even. I don't even know if it's like cutting off your nose to spite your face because it's not really spite. It's just like not having an eye toward
2: the. Well, it's like just you're just it's not like saying attention. you can't go into a restaurant because you don't have a nose. I just can't go in. <laughs> it's just like I just the, can't go the in. I can't smell cost, the food. I can't eat it. Like the, I can't eat. The
0: opportunity cost is just not doesn't seem to be kind of entering the minds of a lot of these owners, which is just striking considering that you know they're business people you know like they should they should be the ones that understand the long-term impact that something like this can have and maybe they just don't believe that that's the case maybe they just think that fans and people like everything will come back it doesn't really matter how nasty this gets things will just return back to normal snap back um and i don't know if that's gonna happen
3: well so it's yeah to say that they're they're businessmen i i think that's been the biggest issue with this is the fact that they are businessmen and as we have heard some panelists discuss and things of the nature of maybe for some, it is worth saving the money of not having to play a season at all or playing this 50 game season where the, you know, the essentially what they're going to lose and what they're going to gain is going to level out where they feel comfortable enough paying players to play only 50 games. Uh, But, The other side of this thing is something that I shared with you guys in the group chat uh, yesterday that I kind of stumbled across, which was a CNBC article talking about the number of billionaires in the country and how much money they've made during this coronavirus time, which I had come on before and said, you know, hey, I understand. I'm sure owners are probably losing money from their other business ventures right now. Well, in fact, the the top billionaires in the world are actually making a lot of money right now. So much so that uh, there was a guy who kind of broke this down, uh, Daniel Epstein, that owners uh, in Major League Baseball have made, or they've gotten about seven hundred and fifteen million dollars wealthier since the start of the pandemic. So they're not they're not hurt for cash. As uh, as the Cardinals owners and the Cubs owners would have you believe, they, they have the money to do this, but they are businessmen, and so they're not going to overspend where they don't have to, uh, and it's just, it's so frustrating. I know we also discussed Trevor Bauer talking about, he singled in on the fact of, well, these negotiations keep delaying because if you want to play a 50-game season, it's not going to start until July 5th, I think is the the target date that he put on, because we all know the season has to end September 27th, so if that's going to happen, we, we've got to draw this thing out another two weeks before then we can finally say, oh, we came to an
0: agreement, let's start playing. And if those billionaires are hurting so bad, they should prove it by opening their books. That's a, and, th- and the players have always been open, saying, hey, yeah. you want us to take pay cuts, show Absolutely. us the books, show us why, and we'll, and we'll consider it.
2: So, bringing this closer to home, guys, if, let's say, doomsday happens, we don't have a 2020 season, for the Atlanta Braves, who does that negatively impact the most?
3: I think it's pretty easy to say Ronald Acuna Jr. I mean, this guy is the face of the... He's becoming the face of the franchise, the face of Major League Baseball. He's energetic. He's exciting to see. And we're going to take away a season of his talents from the team where... I mean, who knows? You can throw out all the possibilities. Maybe he's National League MVP. Maybe... You know the Braves are poised to make it to the World Series. There's all of these maybes, but I I just agree. Uh, a buddy of mine, Harry Lyles Jr., who who just recently started working for ESPN, he was like the Rob Manfred's uh, greatest uh, grief or whatever from this season is the fact that he's taking away a full season of Ronald Acuna Jr. and
0: we're just we're missing out on that that excitement and the the talent. Mm-hmm. And the Braves miss out on that, too, because he's, you know, pound for pound talent for, for dollars that you're spending. He's probably on the most team friendly deal in all of Major League Baseball. And from a Braves perspective, you're just essentially losing out on one of those years of value that you were getting from having that great contract. So that that's a huge loss for the Braves. I guess to say something else, because I would kind of agree with Caleb there. But I would say, you know, this is I think this is really detrimental for Austin Riley. Um he had his ups and downs last year. We all know he came up and he was just freaking amazing for like six weeks. He really carried the the team to an extent and helped really vault the Braves from being a middling 500-ish team to really taking a, a stronghold over the NL East last year. And I think that that gets overlooked a lot because of the way he struggled down the stretch last season. But I felt like this season was going to be really important for him to just try to find that kind of stabilizing level where he can kind of have a solid baseline to build off of. And just in terms of kind of, we saw the huge high and the low, low, and you just want to kind of find a middle ground and then gradually start to, you know, uh, improve yourself from that, from that level. And I just feel like it's going to be really tough for him to kind of find that level when you haven't been facing live pitching for, you know, close to close to a year uh, at the major league level. And so I, I do really worry about that sitting him back. And then there's other, Players, the Christian Paches, the Drew Waters, like you just wonder how that affects their development. I do think with Christian Paché, because of his defensive ability, he's still going to be uh, very usable for you in the near term. But I think for a guy like Drew Waters, you probably have to like push his development schedule probably just back an entire year.
2: I would take the stance of the young pitching staff, especially you know the guys at the front end of the rotation. You know the Mike Sorokas, the Mike Volteneviches. This was a big year for them. I think this was kind of the year for Soroka to find out. Okay, how can you back up a stellar twenty nineteen with the twenty twenty performance? If you can really create yourself into becoming the unquestionable ace of this staff, I think we wanted to see the bounce back effort from a Mike Voltenevich off of the the playoff loss, and also some of these other guys like. You know, Sean Newcomb. We've talked about him a lot on our yeah. podcast. Uh Kyle Wright, somebody who I think had a tremendous spring and you know, for the second year in a row, looked like he might have been able to break camp with the club. It didn't go well for him in twenty nineteen. And then there's some of these other ancillary pitchers on the on the fringe, like you know, a Toussaint Tucson or a Bryce Wilson. They were gonna have opportunities with expanded rosters, I think, in, in order to contribute to the Braves at the big club in two thousand twenty. And if we don't have a season, that not only sets them back, but it sets the Braves back in wondering, okay. Do we have to go back again and try and patchwork our rotation with, you know, veterans who are going to command a pretty penny? And we've talked about how the economics of baseball in a potential offseason would certainly be a lot different because of the fact that free agents are not going to be able to command as much money. Because if they're not going to want to play the players during the season, well, get ready for what the hot stove season is going to look like because (laughs) they're going to be cheaper than than ever. And
0: I would just say, you know, I'm just really kind of interested to see how all this plays out. Because I'm not a I'm not a scout. I'm not a baseball development person. So I'm not sure exactly how, especially when you look at pitchers, how certain guys are going to be able to come back from this situation. Like I think of a guy like a Felix Hernandez who you know, was a dominant pitcher for a long time. Obviously things kind of fell apart for him, but he was starting to build things back up with the Braves. He had a really nice spring training. He was looking like he was going to solidify a spot in the starting rotation. And you just wonder how a guy who is a seasoned veteran like that, like, is he so into his routines that something like this throws him out of whack and kind of makes it more difficult for him to come back or is it you know or is it, and is it easier then for like a younger pitcher who is not really in that flow of having played major league season after major league season for them to kind of um adjust to this chaotic schedule i do wonder about these things maybe it's the opposite maybe it's felix's felix hernandez's veteran experience and savvy that allows him to uh, readjust and come back better than a, a pitcher that doesn't have as much experience i don't know exactly but i am just kind of interested to see how all these things kind of shake out to kind of piggyback off you, Joe, the thought that
3: has gone through my mind is you see all of these other leagues, Major League Soccer, NBA, uh, putting dates on not just getting the season started, but getting back together and getting some sort of normal practice going. And, and you, we've seen Atlanta United you know, getting the full team together so that they can practice and get used to each other once again. That is my biggest fear for... The Braves is the longer these negotiations go on, the longer we're waiting for a period that that they're going to have clean team facilities to get together and to just like hone their craft, just work on their mechanics to work on every single minute detail of their game that the longer they're sitting on the couch or having to go in their garage and makeshift something. I know we've seen, uh, there's been a video of Justin Verlander throwing off the mound. And, um, you know, but but every guy isn't as fortunate as Justin Verlander to have the money that he does, to have the facilities to be able to pitch like that, that guys are, are losing out on those opportunities to just simply play their their game or or to work on their game and and the further we keep going with a a to be determined deal the the longer that wait is and it's just I I think it could be career changing like like you were kind of alluding to for not only the veterans but the younger guys just because of that simple fact
2: so as as futile as it sounds we did have a baseball draft between the last time we what? talked what? Whoop, whoop.
0: oh yeah oh you mean like when rob Manfred was saying there was 100 percent going to be a season
2: that was actually <laughs> the same night that that all happened that's uh that's right braves vaguely
0: act, remembering that now
2: braves very much uh had a bit of a shocker in their first round although if you think about the reasons why it wasn't um they were dealing in a situation that did not allow them have a lot of Actual signing bonus money because of signing second round or giving up a second round selection to sign Will Smith. They took Wake Forest left-hander Jared Schuster in the first round. They also have Michigan outfielder Jesse Franklin, Clemson right-hander Spencer Strider, and Texas right-hander Bryce Elder as part of their draft class. Couple of other signings. I know Joe, you were following this for us middle part of last week.
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh, and I talked to Dana Brown, who's the vice president of um, director of scouting, vice president of scouting for the Braves after that draft and uh, it was pretty interesting what he had to say about schuster you know it was a guy that n- not many Braves fans were expecting them to take he was he was an underslot guy for sure and that i think that underslot money was m- mainly being saved for that bryce elder pick in the fifth round who i think was tabbed as like more like a third round talent so they kind of got a got a good value with that pick and hopefully they with the money they saved on Schuster they will be able to pay Bryce Elder what he's going to want because he uh had the option to return uh to Texas but going back to Schuster I think that the Braves like him as like a very kind of functional guy he's really he's added to his velocity he was kind of topping out his fastball in the upper 80s uh the year last year in college and then uh, over the off season and, and early in the Wake Forest baseball season this year, he he added his velocity. It was getting up to like 94, 95 um, topping out. So that's a good increase in the fastball. They like that. And he's kind of like a fastball changeup guy, lefty. So kind of in the Cole Hamels mold, that's kind of Cole Hamels MO is being um, good command with the fastball and, and mix it up with the changeup. I personally think, you know, he is a starting pitcher. that He'll certainly kind of be developed as a starter and they hope he pans out that way. But from talking to Dana, it sounds like they may not waste time if, if they don't see him as a starter, uh, having that starter potential immediately. He could be pretty quickly useful as a, just a, as a lefty arm at the major league level. Um, because he's a strike thrower you know like he's not going to walk a lot of guys so you can bring him into into situations um he could be a lefty specialist potentially but as a two-pitch pitcher he's already got the fastball and the change up that already already sets him up well for a bullpen spot so i think that you're it, it, the pick is really has potential because we he continue he's shown a huge improvement over a short a period of time recently and if you can, can continue that um Which, by the way, that improvement was kind of down to a a mechanic. They said it was like his hip turn. They really liked that he improved. If he can kind of continue that improvement, then he has a lot of upside. But there's not a really much downside with this pick either.
2: Like, he's, he's going to be useful in one way or another. I can give you only a little bit. On Spencer Strider, because I saw him pitch at Clemson in his freshman season. Uh, he missed all of last year because of Tommy John surgery. And uh, the one thing that he's always kind of had is, is trouble with his command. He is a strike thrower. He does uh, have, I think, the fourth largest strikeout per nine inning ratio in the history of Clemson. And that's a Program that's had a mm-hmm. lot of great pitches here, especially over the last couple of years. But, you know, it's a guy who's only made four appearances in the last two years. So they're basically going significantly off potential there.
0: Yeah. And I think one other interesting thing, part of this Braves draft, and again, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how the five rounds, if this, if this influenced it at all, but. All five college players did not take a high school player with these picks. Of course, they didn't have their second round pick, but uh, no high school players taken, which was interesting. Also, the other interesting thing that kind of caught my eye and something that Dana Brown pointed out when we were talking about Schuster was he said he runs a 6.560, which is like outfield speed. That's like a legit Mm. athlete type of. Sprint speed, and so that's interesting. And when you combine that with the fact, and then you look at another guy that they really liked in Bryce Elder, who's like this big, athletic-looking guy. You know, I think that the Braves kind of they they hold a lot of uh, value in just being athletic. You know, and, and kind of just having that body <laughs> that can probably withstand injury, and and uh, I think it just probably reduces risk. You
3: guys talking about the Braves selecting all college athletes. Uh, initially that was a, a big shocker to a lot of people, but I think under, cause I, I won't necessarily understand all of, you know, these players' skill and, and what they've done for their respective teams, but from a broader sense, these guys at least have been scouted. Right. And so you're, you're not, you know, with, with all of these high school players, they didn't play their senior year. So There's, you know, I'm sure you've got travel ball and other things to kind of base off of them, but that's kind of taking an additional risk amongst things. When it comes to the the college side of things, man, I don't think something that's getting enough attention is the fact that we went from 40 rounds normally every year to five. And so you have all of these guys who are used to or, or were expecting to come out, get drafted, and, you know, to go on and try to figure out their their professional career that now didn't get that opportunity. They, a lot of it's being thrown out that uh, the NCAA has expanded the, the 35-man roster limit to, you know, you can, you can essentially hold these players who were expecting to be drafted or leaving as seniors – but here's the problem. These colleges don't have the don't have money right now. Like they're mm-hmm. they're losing money hand over fist right now. And so are they going to want to pay these scholarships for the for the players that are expecting to come back? So you could end up with a lot of guys who are just stuck and and you know have nowhere to go because of all of the the um, circumstances that they could have never never seen coming
2: yeah baseball is kind of going in the opposite way the nba is the nba is wanting to expand its development league to a point where you know they can take players who might not make an nba roster either out of college or straight out of high school if they change the the one and done rule it seems like baseball's inclination with the Basically, contraction of the minor leagues and at least the temporary contraction of this draft. Although many believe that it could be something that becomes a part of uh, the draft moving forward, is that they want that development to uh, to happen during college? Yeah, it, which I think is a, a stark departure from where things were for a long time.
0: It's really interesting to me when you when you talk about the the draft being cut from forty rounds to five, because if you ask anybody. Um, not even people who people like um, my one of my friends, Eric Cole, who writes for Talking Chop. He's at Leprechaun. Definitely follow him if you're into am Well, I'm sure if you're into college baseball and, and um, draft prospects, you surely already follow him. But, uh, you know, he's talked a lot about that. This is some of the best money that MLB teams could spend. Like this is this is the best use of dollars and cents when you're talking about. Signing guys that have potentially huge, huge value to your franchise, as opposed to the dollars and cents you add on to the end of a Cole Hamill's contract, you know, like some veteran or a uh, Nick Markakis, like, like some veteran guy who's giving you diminishing returns at the at the end of his career. These are very valuable dollars that are spent, and I feel like it's very weird that the that MLB teams would actually want this. Uh, to be one of the ways that they kind of trim the budget and save money because you think that it's just a better value for them to have more of these dollars to spend on young guys. Uh, I guess part of it is because they just can like they have the authority to, to make this decision. And it's just, they don't have the authority to save those same dollars and cents on the ends of uh, the contracts of Nick Markakis and such. And I guess that that's kind of at the root of what we're what the labor negotiations are at now. But uh, it's really a shame that, that that a lot of these teams aren't able to spend more money on some of these guys, because again, it's just great value and it's, and it hurts it's really a shame for a lot of these draft prospects just because they didn't have a seat at the table when it came to negotiating these things. It was just out of their control and they're kind of at the whims of the, the deal, the deal makers here.
2: Well, gentlemen, we are out of time for this week. Unfortunately, uh, hopefully, hopefully, we have better news when we reconvene. I still hold out hope for an emergency podcast, that the bat signal to go up and us have a season between now and the next time we speak on this podcast. But for those of you listening, be sure to download the batter up podcast on the radio.com app or wherever you get your podcasts. For Joe Patrick, Caleb Johnson, I'm Will Polachk saying thank you for listening for batter up or radio.com and 99 the game exclusive.